Arturo Brito. I am the president and CEO of Children's Health Fund. So what inspired you to get into the medical field in the first place? Yeah, you know, I was I, I was fortunate to have an incredibly gifted science teacher in ninth grade. And that's what got me down the road of science. Um, what got me into the medical field is the same thing that drove me to uh, do what I do today. And what I've done my entire professional career is working with under-resourced communities, making sure that, in this case, children have access to comprehensive health care um, everywhere in this country. Uh, I'm an immigrant to this country. When I was seven years old with my family, we came here from Cuba via Nicaragua. And, um, you know, I understand what it's like to not have the healthcare one needs. I also understand what it is to have it. And it's really uh, at an early age, I recognize the value of having quality healthcare. Um, and that connection between science and doing something to make a difference in the world is really what drives me to do what I do. I'm fortunate that I have these opportunities. So how did you get involved with the Children's Health Fund? Yeah, I, I think you're aware, Michael, that I, I rejoined Children's Health Fund a year ago, September. So I've been back for about 15 months. And rejoining is the a word of emphasis here because I've had a long history with Children's Health Fund. After two years uh, that I spent in Indian Health Service in southwestern Alaska with a Yupik people population, I came home in a way uh, back then to South Florida. Uh, I took the job uh, as the medical director of the South Florida Children's Health Project, uh, one of the uh, partnering programs of the Children's Health Fund. This meant that for the next decade or so, I would work out of a mobile clinic. That was my office, a 38-foot-long vehicle that had two examining rooms, a a nursing uh, station, a waiting area. And I worked alongside a team of psychologists, social workers, nurses. Uh, we had medical students and residents because we were based at the University of Miami uh, School of Medicine. And we worked together to provide comprehensive health care uh, to children growing up throughout Miami-Dade County. Uh, children who otherwise wouldn't have access to that care, certainly not the way we provided it. So I had that decade-long history as one of the medical directors of one of the now 25 programs that Children's Health Fund partners with around the country in 15 states, DC and Puerto Rico. In 2005, after hurricanes Katrina and Rita devastated the New Orleans area, other parts of Louisiana and Mississippi, I, along with many others from our national network, as we often do, responded to that crisis by bringing mobile clinics and bringing uh, teams of uh, providers um, to the area to provide care. And through that work, Erwin Redliner, uh, also a pediatrician, offered for me to come up to New York and serve as a chief medical officer, uh, which I did for the next five years. So again, my history with Children's Health Fund goes back a long way. And I was honored uh, when I was offered this position as president and CEO of Children's Health Fund. So I saw Children's Health Fund is a uh celebrating 35 years of uh, existence. Uh, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of the organization? Sure, yeah, we're entering our 36th year actually, uh, 2023, and uh, Children's Health Fund started off in 1987. Uh, Dr. Erwin Redliner, a pediatrician, um, and 
consummate child advocate, well-known, uh, not only in the United States, throughout the world, but his efforts around child advocacy. Um, his wife, Karen Brenner, uh, who's an administrator and also a co-founder of Children's Health Fund, um, and Paul Simon, the singer, uh, songwriter, worked to develop a program that started in New York City providing health care services to children in homeless shelters throughout the city. And the best way to provide that care um, was through uh, the use of mobile medical clinics that were designed specifically for this purpose. Those mobile clinics are still around today, going from shelter to shelter. That program, our flagship program, now called the Bronx Health Collective, is based at a fixed site clinic along with Montefiore Medical School in the South Bronx, the poorest congressional district in the country. And from there, this fleet of mobile clinics goes out and provides care at homeless shelters. That's the beginnings of it. Yeah. Little by little, they realized there were needs all over the country for children growing up in under-resourced communities, whether it be rural areas in West Virginia, uh, other metropolitan areas like Dallas, um, or mixed areas such as the South Florida, where I worked at uh, for more than a decade. And they started adding programs as partners. Um, and what has resulted is over these last 35 years is now a national network of programs that are really devoted to ensuring that children in their communities have access to quality health care. And when we say quality, we mean comprehensive health care, meaning medical care. We mean mental health care. We mean dental care. And we also mean uh, assuring that health-related social needs, otherwise known as social determinants of health, are met. We've been doing this long before those terms uh, were, were in vogue. It just makes sense to us that you can't have a child grow up healthy and succeed in life if they don't have proper nutrition, if, if the parents are struggling to pay the bills and they don't have appropriate shelter and so on and so forth. So that's just been part of our equation from the beginning. And, and this is really through the brilliance, I think, of the co-founders, Dr. Redliner, Karen, and Paul Simon, who also understood this. So I was looking at uh, your website, and a lot of the stuff I saw was about, you know, uh, children and COVID. What are, besides COVID or including COVID, what are some of the challenges that you have faced? Even before COVID. And I, I just want to say about COVID, COVID is adding another layer of trauma to already traumatized populations that we serve. People being able to access the healthcare they need, either because it's a geographic issue, they might live too far from, from that care, or because it's, it's a discriminatory issue. You have to understand that we see a lot of families um, and children in those families who have been marginalized by our society, who are fearful of going to medical centers or intimidated. You know, even for me, going to this sterile, uh, huge medical complex can be a little bit intimidating. Can right. you imagine someone that is poor, that is someone that is black or brown, um, that feels uh, discrimination in their community um, at particular those centers? Someone that may not have had the opportunity to attain the same educational level as uh, someone uh, like me or people in our network have had the opportunity and been privileged to do that. Um, it's intimidating. And, you know, we don't just offer the mobile clinics as the way to provide care. But I do want to say one of the things the mobile clinics offer is a opportunity to provide an intimate space for people to feel comfortable uh, with their children 
And a point of emphasis here is that the families that we see, they will come back over and over to these mobile clinics uh, on a regular basis. So sometimes people get confused or mobile, but we go throughout the network to the same sites over and over. When I was in South Florida, one of the most fulfilling things in my life is, was to see children grow and develop uh, over the years and thinking and grow and develop to a, you know, to a point that I thought, well, maybe I had a little something to do with that positive development and the care that we provided through this comprehensive team. And I think that's really important to emphasize that um, the challenges, we address those challenges through the mobile clinics. We also, for instance, we've been using telehealth long before it was popular during COVID-19. Right. Um, it, it, we've been using it for a long time and we have some novel programs. Uh, we support a program in North Carolina, for instance, that provides telehealth services in a very rural part of that state to children or adolescents in the juvenile detention centers there. Um, and by all accounts, that care has proved very valuable, not only to those adolescents, um, but also to the people in taking care of them, the wardens, the guards in those juvenile detention centers who repeatedly tell us since that program was implemented, they have seen improvements in the children's health and the adolescent's health and in their behavior because there's mental health services being provided through that program too, through telehealth. We also have a program right now in the Bronx that we want to expand that provides, that addresses health barriers to learning. This is called Health and Ready to Learn. Um, as healthcare providers, we understand that if a child, for instance, has asthma and they're not getting the medication they need to prevent exacerbation of that asthma, they're going to miss an awful lot of school because they're at home or they're in an emergency room and unfortunately often hospitalized way more often than they should be when there's medication that is uh, should be accessible to them. And by addressing that health barrier to learning, they're in school more often more likely to succeed in life and be healthier. We also address social emotional issues that a lot of the children and in, in school will have, particularly in the communities we serve, by making sure in this school in particular, there's a mental health provider. And then we offer tools on our website for others to learn about these health barriers to learning through our Health and Ready to Learn program. So we, we do whatever it takes through innovation. We use data to drive what it is we do. Um, but in the end, what's most important is that we're just making sure that every single child that we touch has the opportunity to get that comprehensive health care that we know makes a difference in their lives. What are some of the things you've learned from caring for these children? You said in uh, in South Florida, you've, you've watched these children grow, but uh, just talking to them, what have you learned from them? Well, you know, what I learned is that every child um, is unique. At the same time, every child needs the same thing. They need quality health care. Um, the children and the families that I used to see in Florida, one thing I learned is what they, and good quality health care starts with listening, approaching every single patient the same way with an open mind, unbiased, and not making judgments about people. And if you offer an opportunity for children and parents to have a developing trusting relationship with the, not only their doctor, but the entire healthcare team, where they feel comfortable coming in, they're not going to delay care because they're intimidated by the system or they're fearful of the system. Yeah. Um, they're also going to, you know, so they're not only the physical aspect, but they're also going to 
be more likely, and this is going way back when there was a, is there still a stigma on mental health care, but not as much as it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. And they're also more likely to open up about some of the challenges and be more accepting of the need for emotional or mental health support uh, from a provider or a healthcare team. Uh, but in the end, I, I think what every child um, and every adult that we focus on the children needs is just a trusting relationship with a healthcare team that they know they can rely on um, when their child is sick, but they can also develop that relationship when their child is well. What motivates you? I, you know, I grew up um, in a family that uh, my parents always did the right thing. There's a real value system in my family, starting with my parents. Um, and again, being an immigrant to this country where we had um, opportunities and we also had obstacles, um, it just feels right. It's just in my heart, you know, to make a difference. And I, I'm fortunate to have recognized this early on in my life. And and this is what I've done my entire professional career. You know, I'm, I'm proud to be a community pediatrician. And what I mean by that is someone that sees beyond the clinical walls, someone that understands that health is not just a, a good health care, is not simply writing a prescription for an antibiotic. That's part of it. OK, but it's not just that you have to understand that child in the context of their family in the context of the community in order to ensure that that child has the best chance of growing up healthy and succeeding in life. And that that's it. What motivates me is, you know, maybe some intangible things that are hard to describe, but it, it's just a love and a passion for um, making a difference and being part of that difference. Uh, and I want to emphasize one of the things that Children's Health Fund does, uh, has been doing a long time is that uh, you speak to all the pediatricians that work on the mobile clinics or on telehealth or through our school programs. None of us do this alone. Yeah. We we integrate uh, with mental health providers, social workers. It's all in combination. And so when I talk about pediatric providers in our network, I'm talking about pediatric dentists who are incredibly gifted and devoted uh, to ensuring that children, for instance, have... Um, the best oral health care possible because that impacts both physical and mental health and also success in life. Um, we have incredible social workers who connect children and families to the resources they need. They're often right in their own community. They just don't be aware of it and show them how to access those uh, resources. We have programs around the country that work um, with attorneys to help uh, families address barriers to good housing, healthy housing, uh, to immigration issues. Uh, when I was in South Florida, we worked with the University of Miami School of Law and law students would come out and help write letters to landlords to make sure that, um, you know, they had safe, uh, uh, pest-free homes that they were, you know, growing up in, um, the children were growing up in. So it, it's it's a very comprehensive approach, and but it's what makes the most sense uh, to me because without it, it's it's you know, you're not going to make much of a change. You know, I also want to emphasize that we do a lot of work around historically and continue around policy and advocacy. Yeah. yeah. So we we see through our national network uh, approximately 100,000 
uh, children a year, individual children a year, through four to 500,000 visits a year. Again, the children come back. Oh, wow. We're aiming to go to 150,000 by 2025. Um, in addition to that, though, we also work on policy issues um, that impact uh, children um, being able to access quality health care uh, throughout the country. Um, and that's really important because one of the things I've learned, uh, and this is where Erwin Redliner and Karen and others, uh, including myself when I was there as chief medical officer, we worked really hard, for instance, on the children's self-insurance program that started in 1997 and continues um, today uh, that impacts millions of children just having insurance. Um, and, and we continue to do uh, work like that because we want to get to a point where every child in this country um, has access to that quality health care, that comprehensive health care. We want to get to a point where children's self-fund um, is no longer needed because we're there. I, you know, I remember being asked that uh, when CHIP was about to be authorized back in 1997. And I said, well, insurance is the entry point for many, but it's not the only solution. Until we start seeing healthcare as comprehensive as the way Children's Health Fund does and delivers through its national network, we're not going to get there. So I, I don't see that, unfortunately, that coming anytime soon. Um, and this is why we need support, too, because, you know, we're doing an awful lot and there's much more we can be doing both on the service side and the policy and advocacy side. And um, so we need the support um, to be able to do that. I could just hear the passion and dedication just talking to you. And for me personally, I have a bipolar disorder too. So focusing on the mental health, especially at a younger age, is yeah. very important. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with me. And and you bring up another good point. I don't know if you meant to do that, but the other point is that, you know, you know for me, why did I go into pediatrics? Well, one of the things I learned in, during my rotations in medical school is that you can prevent so much from happening if you start at an early age. Yeah. Um, and mental health is certainly one of them. You may not be able to prevent the bipolar, as an example, illness from developing, but you can definitely manage it much better the earlier you start. We see that with autism. We see that with, um, you know, any other mental health issues, but also physical issues. Um, you know, we have the issue of obesity in this country. Uh, you you get kids that have um, developed a lifelong pattern of good eating and exercise. Um, you're less likely to have a child develops uh, obesity, right? Uh, and therefore diabetes. Um, children, early, early onset trauma that occurs early in life, if it's not addressed, can impact lifelong health. We've seen that. We know that. So um, immunizations, by providing childhood immunizations, you prevent a lot of diseases. Um, you know, now we're talking about COVID, but it's not just that. It, it's, uh, you know, things like uh, polio and measles. Right. We've seen outbreaks of measles because people aren't getting immunized. But you do that early on in life. You prevent those diseases and the sequelae or uh, uh, long-term effects of these diseases. Um, then you're going to be much better. And that's why I went into pediatrics, because I wanted to focus more on the prevention side than on the disease um, uh, treatment side, because often, you know, it's more costly and much more painful to do really to watch, you know, someone that's older, 
uh, an older child or an adult have to deal with, um, you know, heart disease, diabetes, et cetera. If you can prevent these issues or at least manage them early on in life, you're going to do a whole lot better. Physical, mental health, oral health care, all of that.